Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, God's Rescue Plan. So turning your Bibles to Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 to 24, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Death in the Nile. Every culture trusts in something for its survival. You know, our culture and the culture of the Western world, well, we trust in the technology that we've developed along with, you know, our ability to manufacture things in any country around the world and then quickly and efficiently and inexpensively have it shipped to our shores. You know, often we don't even think about how much everything depends on a very few things. I mean, one of those things is electricity. You know, some time ago, my wife and I watched a very extensive documentary on whether our power grid is vulnerable and whether it can continue to handle the increasing demands that we place on it and what should happen if it were not there. On that last point, that is, what would occur if it weren't there? The documentary said that the most valuable tool anyone could have if there were not electricity would be an animal-drawn plow or one that could be pulled by a human being. That is, if We could till the land and plant crops and harvest them by hand. That is, that's what we would be reduced to in a very short order. I have long been fascinated what happens to a civilization when it collapses. You know, sometimes it has been that, you know, access to drinking water vanishes. I mean, those are things that in our world we simply take for granted. We have the belief that our technology, as well as our innovative spirit, will always get us through any difficulty that we face. That's what's called faith in ourselves. But history is replete with examples of what happens when the things that we trusted in fail. And the book of Exodus provides us with an example of what happens when the things Egypt trusted in not only fail, but are disrupted by God. We're about to be introduced to a series of 10 plagues. And by the end of the 10th plague, Pharaoh will recognize that he can't fight Israel's God and he's going to let Israel go. And the number 10 is an important number. You know, at this time in history, the Egyptians were using a decimal counting system. And in that system, the number 10 would signify a complete quantity of what's being counted. Same is true in in biblical thinking. You know, 10 provides us a complete representation of God's power. Well, God's power is the story of the plagues. It's directed at the things that Egypt counts on for her survival but it's also directed at Egypt's religious system, her gods and goddesses. And I've said this in the past, the religion of Egypt was a naturalistic polytheism. That is, the gods and goddesses of Egypt were fully identified with nature. And like the God of Israel, who alone is God, who stands outside of nature and can't be identified with nature because he's created nature and nature exists in dependence on God, Egypt's many gods were identified completely with nature. So we have to begin then with an understanding that the Nile, which flooded every year and filled the land with nutrients and made it productive, that was also considered to be a god. You know, if it were not for the Nile, all Egypt would simply have become a barren desert. Rain is infrequent in that part of the world. The only arable land is the land that's flooded every year. And the god Happy was the Nile God, and he was worshipped. That is to say, the Egyptians didn't pray to God with thankfulness that he had provided the Nile for their well-being. Instead, they worshipped the Nile itself. The Nile for them was a God. So let's begin with our text, Exodus 7, 14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. 
two things here. First, remember that Moses and Aaron have just demonstrated that Israel's God is vastly superior to the gods of Egypt. But Pharaoh, rather than, you know, thinking the matter through, he remains unmoved. His only concern is to make sure that his slaves keep working and there's not a hint of rebellion among the slaves. That's what he wants. And second, Moses would not have been surprised at what God had just told him. God has already made it plain this is going to happen. Moses expects the first plague. Verse 15 then, go to Pharaoh in the morning as he's going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. So the first plague happens while Moses is confronting Pharaoh as Pharaoh's going out to the water. And so you're going to remember that Pharaoh's daughter rescued Moses out of the Nile when he was a boy. She'd come out to the Nile to bathe and she was accompanied by her female attendants. And You know, most people in that day didn't bathe, but it seems like nobility did. So Pharaoh's going to the water, which is understood to be the water of the Nile. He would also have been accompanied by his attendants, advisors, as well as the ever-present magicians, the ones who had been, you know, sufficiently humiliated in the last encounter. But this encounter with Pharaoh happens not in his palace, but in an outdoor setting. So Moses approaches Pharaoh in some fashion, And as he approaches him, he's not forbidden from saying what he wants to say. Moses is to take the very staff that turned into a serpent. He's to let Pharaoh know that his staff, representing the authority of God, has come back to confront him again. Verses 16 to 18. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord. By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water in this Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Now, we've already noticed that Moses will be as God to Pharaoh. That is, Pharaoh understands that, you know, Moses is not speaking on his own. He's demanding everything because God has told him to do that. And with that understanding, that Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, has not made a request. Rather, God has made a demand, and if Pharaoh doesn't comply, then comes judgment. You have not obeyed. Pharaoh's not used to that kind of language. I mean, who tells Pharaoh he's not obeyed? And the answer is, God does. Because God is not intimidated by a man, nor by any person's position in life. You know, Hebrews 4 verse 13 says, And no creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must, that is, we must all give an account. God sees Pharaoh for what he truly is. He's a a mere human being whom he, that is God, has made and to whom Pharaoh must one day answer. And when God demands, it's a crime for any king or chancellor or president or prime minister to refuse God. God will demand of Pharaoh in the same manner as he demands of a servant or a slave. You, Pharaoh, have not obeyed, and thus you stand in the place of judgment. Now, of course, by now, Moses' faith has grown. He understands his role as a prophet. And so if Pharaoh is not aware that Yahweh is God, then he's about to know in a way that he will not easily be able to dismiss. You know, perhaps you can watch the staffs of the magicians being swallowed up by Aaron's staff, and perhaps you're going to feel uncomfortable by that. You manage to go on. But now you're not going to manage to go on. The staff is to be held over the very Nile that Pharaoh has come to bathe in. 
and he's going to have to cancel his bathing plans that day. Notice the precision that surrounds Moses' statement. First, the Nile is going to be changed to blood. Next, the fish will die. Then the river is going to stink. And finally, the Egyptians won't be able to drink its water. But it's the announcement. By this you will know that I am the Lord that said directly, it said loudly enough, that everyone around Pharaoh hears it. You haven't acknowledged my supremacy, says God. Now, after this, you won't be able to deny it. Now, as we read these words, we do well to remember the historical context of those words. Happy, I've said before, was the Nile God, and you, the Nile God, will stink. You'll be unable to sustain life. People who trust in you will be proved futile. So verses 19 to 21, And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water of the Nile. And all the water of the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. And before we go any further, let's settle the matter of the Nile becoming blood. You know, in the Hebrew language, blood is a color as well as a substance. We have something vaguely similar to that in English. We can speak of something being blood red. And we don't mean that, you know, blood is mixed into the color. We mean that the color is the same color as blood. And in Hebrew, blood can refer to actual blood, as we understand the word today, or it might also mean that the Nile would simply be turned into the color of blood. And I only mention that because some Bible teachers argue that, you know, the red dirt of the Ethiopian plateau would at times wash into the Nile and it would flow all the way to Egypt. It would cause a reddish color in the Nile. And so they say that's all that happened here. We're gonna address the issue of whether or not that's true. Every year, Back to the Bible Canada releases an annual scripture reading calendar. This is our most requested Bible resource. Well, the time has come to request your 2023 scripture calendar today with the theme, Freedom in Christ. Each month contains beautiful, thoughtfully selected images, inspirational Bible verses, encouraging quotes from Dr. John Newfeld and a Bible reading plan that will help you read through the entire Bible in one year. We pray this calendar will inspire, keep you in the Word every day, and remind you of just how blessed we are to live freely in Christ. So for the month of October, request your copy of Freedom in Christ. But hurry, quantities are limited. To request your free copy, just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit Back to the Bible. There are those who argue that there is no miracle here in our passage, you know, when the water turned into blood. Now, just to be clear, I have no difficulty with the suggestion that what happened is that the Nile turned blood red in color only. And that's because of several things. First, You know, as we study the 10 plagues, we're going to see that with each plague, the intensity is ratcheted up. 
is that seems clear until, you know, we get close to the end when Pharaoh's advisors are going to say, I mean, you can't keep fighting this Hebrew God. Can't you see that Egypt lies in absolute ruins? I mean, if you carry on, your only legacy will be that you're the king whose actions destroyed this nation. And so it seems to me that each of the plagues gets more disruptive than the last. But if the Nile would have actually turned into the substance of blood rather than just the color of blood, then the first plague would likely have destroyed Egypt right there. And so just like the second plague is frogs, then gnats, then flies, all of these are natural phenomenon. You know, it doesn't seem to stretch my imagination to say that the Nile became, you know, filled with silt or algae or something like that that would make it appear blood red. But saying that it's an element of nature doesn't mean that it's not a miracle. Look, I say this because clearly, as Moses strikes the water, it turns blood instantly, immediately. The water is instantly polluted so that it instantly becomes undrinkable to humans, and it instantly kills the fish. I'd also assume that, you know, perhaps other animals died as well, maybe crocodiles. I mean, birds would have avoided it. You know, the text says that the pollution affected the canals, the pools, the ponds as well. And one more thing, in case you missed it, that same color found its way into the wooden and stone vessels. You know, had these vessels been used to draw drinking water from the Nile? Well, no doubt. But when the Nile changed color, so did the color in the vessels. In short, whether or not this is a natural element found in nature, you know, that's immaterial. That this natural element so polluted everything with such speed is clearly a miracle that even Pharaoh can't deny. See, the thing that pressed this home to everyone is that the dead fish and the dead everything that swam in the Nile immediately filled all of Egypt with a dreadful stench. The wording of the paragraph seems to indicate that not only did the Nile become instantly red, but the Nile also instantly gave off a putrid stench. Clearly, this is not what the critics have argued, that it was simply some kind of a natural annual reddening of the Nile. If that's all this was, Pharaoh wouldn't have paid attention to it whatsoever. But this was something quite serious. If this pollution of the Nile was so instant and so pervasive and so deadly, so that even drinking pots in homes became instantly polluted, so we have to think, that there would have been an instant panic in the land. If there's nothing to drink, then the land would be stinking of more than fish in a period of time. It would be stinking from the livestock and people who would die. And so how did anyone or anything survive? So I'm going to jump ahead now to verse 24, where it says, And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. So that verse is extremely important to understand the big picture. How did the Egyptians survive the plague? And it would seem that every surface source of water was immediately polluted, but the underground water sources were left unaffected. In short, as dramatic as the first plague was, it was no more than a disruptive annoyance. It wasn't a life-threatening disaster. I remember a number of years ago, and it was winter, and in the community where I was living, because we had a heavy rain, there's a great amount of silt that flowed into the city water reservoir and all the tap water came out brown. But after the bottled water ran out, we were told that we could filter our water through a coffee filter, then we had to boil it thoroughly. So it, it was a great inconvenience, and it, it led to you know people making charges of incompetence among local politicians. And even in one case, there was a fist fight that broke out you know, over the last bit of bottled water in our area. 
But in the end, even though all this, you know, disrupted our lives, none of us felt that our lives were threatened. And that's the nature of the first plague. It is, if you will, a kind of a shot across the bow. Or if you put it in boxing terms, it's that first punch in the nose that gets your attention. The God of the Hebrews is not pleased with Pharaoh, and now there's not one person in all of Egypt who doesn't know. And furthermore, the God of Hebrews has also punched happy the Nile God right in the nose, and the entire country looks up. Something's underfoot, and the sooner our politicians do something about this, the better. I mean, you've got to imagine at this moment, everyone in the entire country is talking. Everyone's saying, did you hear what Moses did to the Nile? He simply held out a staff. And how come we didn't know the name of this slave God until this very point in time? Now, God had told Pharaoh, by this you will know that I am Yahweh. Isn't that interesting? You know, on the very first occasion, when Pharaoh met Moses, he condescendingly asked, well, who's Yahweh? I guess he's not going to ask that again. And with that, we now pay attention to the two verses we skipped over. Let's look at them now, verses 22 and 23. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. See, if I were Pharaoh, I do think I would have liked it more, you know, that after Moses had turned the Nile into blood, that the magicians stepped forward and they changed it back. And that would have been impressive. And that would have showed the superiority of the gods of Egypt over the God of the Hebrews. But instead, the Egyptians were also able to make water turn into blood. And we've got to assume that whatever they did, it was on a small scale as opposed to the large-scale miracle that Moses had done. And that might lead one to wonder about why Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. How could a small duplication of a large miracle, one that brings hardship to all of Egypt, make him unresponsive? And I think the answer has to be that that Pharaoh reasoned that what Moses was able to do is, you know, the kind of things that an elite group of people are able to do. Didn't make Moses God superior. That's how he thought. He wasn't unstoppable. His God was formidable, but there were other formidable gods as well, so his heart is hard. It's not an insurmountable problem. And it must be said that the first plague was not intended to be a showstopper. It was intended to get Pharaoh's attention. It did that. We also know from verse 25, it says, seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. I take that to mean that the conditions of a blood-red Nile with its death to the fish only lasted seven days, and then the plague ended. Obviously, the dead fish would have washed onto the shore, and the stench would have remained longer, and it would have reminded everyone in the country that Moses' God had struck the Nile, But when things return to normal, people tend to be relieved and they take no action. But something must have nagged at Pharaoh and his officials. I've already made mention that the Egyptian god Happy was the god of the Nile, and the Egyptians thought that the Nile is a god, and Happy was the god of the annual flooding of the Nile. He brought nutrition to the land. He deposited rich silt excellent for farming. And Happy also bore other titles like the Lord of the Fishes, But for a one-week period of time in Egypt's life, Happy had been struck. The farmland and the fish that relied upon it for life were overthrown. I mean, how would Pharaoh dismiss that? Did his hardness of heart simply dismiss the implications of this event? I mean, perhaps he let it go and simply went on. Impressive, but not overwhelming. My magicians can do some of that too. In some way, this opening plague and the response of Pharaoh can be a reminder to all of us of what we do When we see the action of God, 
serving as a warning, but do nothing. See, I began by saying that every culture depends on something in order to survive. I might even say that these dependencies are very much like the gods of ancient Egypt. We simply believe they can't fail. In the modern world, there's the belief that our technology is always going to save us in the day of trouble. But then God sends us a shot across the bow, drought, or a freak winter storm that knocks the power out, and we go without for a week. Or it might be intense heat that puts too much strain on our power grid. In that week, things get just a bit desperate. Some people even die. But when the lights come back on, well, we remind ourselves it was only one week, and in the end of the day, you know, our technology is back as before. We're going to be just fine, even though we occasionally have uneasy thoughts. Imagine that and hear the commands of God. To Pharaoh, it was simple. Let my people go. And he says, no. And then life returns to normal. And to us, it might be some very unsettling event. It causes us to reconsider our ways. But when life gets back to normal, many of us don't listen to God anymore. We say, we're going to be okay. We always have been okay. We're going to be okay again. And God is gracious. His shot across our bow is intended to arrest our attention. Pharaoh, however, was determined not to listen. As we read this, ask yourself and answer the question, will you listen when God gets your attention? When that shock hits you, look up and listen and pay it to mind. Let your heart be softened, not hardened. Thanks for your message, John. Let me ask you, do you think that life's unsettling moments, even tragedies, should be considered as God trying to get our attention? I know that God is always getting our attention. <laughs> always, always. So you can't look at tragedy as if the wheels have fallen off on God's dealings in your life. And that would be a great you know, cry of unbelief. So we need to say, you know, God help my unbelief. So when you know, it seems to us that the wheels have fallen off, say to yourself, but they haven't because God is completely in control. So yes, God is getting our attention. And he does, as C.S. Lewis, I think, said that he whispers to us in our pleasures, but he actually shouts to us in our pain. He gets our attention. So listen to what God has to say when things are difficult. Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy, but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom, well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca 
for your free and confidential consult.